We'll be looking primarily at uh, Acts 26 this morning. Uh, let's just pray for a moment again. Lord, give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. Open our eyes to see how long and deep and high and wide is your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, let me tell you a story. Man gets a call, but he doesn't recognize the caller or the area code, so he lets it go to voicemail. And he's so busy with important things, he thinks they're important, that he never checks his voicemail. So the correspondent who failed to connect by phone tries to connect on his Facebook page. But he rarely looks at the posts on Facebook, you know, because he's so busy. So he tries emailing him. But the man gets 40 emails a day, so he just skips over the ones from senders he doesn't recognize. He always thinks he'll go back over them, but he never does. And he thinks they're probably spam anyways. So the message gets spoken and posted and written, but it never gets received. The man isn't taking calls. I think God is like the person sending the message And we're a little like the man not receiving it. We're not taking calls. We don't want to be disturbed. Too much going on. I've heard people complain, and sometimes bitterly, about the silence of God. But I suspect God has better cause to complain about the silence or the indifference of people. So far in this series, which we started a couple weeks before I left, we have seen that change occurs at the nexus of insight, decision, and implementation. All these are critical to lasting positive change. But it's important, I think, for us to realize the kind of insight that we're talking about doesn't require superior intelligence or some kind of remarkable intuition. The kind of insight we're talking about requires revelation. We only have insight. That is, we see in because God speaks out. Now, remember the creation narrative? And God said, let there be light, and there was light. That's still how it works. He speaks, there's light, and we see what we wouldn't otherwise see. We have insight. The true light that gives light to every man, that's John chapter 1, enables us to see. His revelation always precedes our insight, which is not so much a testament to God's sovereign choice, though it is that, as it is evidence of his all-redeeming love. God is not standing around. I want you to know this. God is not standing around with his hands in his pockets, wondering what he's going to do next with his poor lost children. He's not worried about what to do next in your life. If he waits for his children, and he does, which is maybe the most remarkable thing about him of all, he waits for us. If he waits for his children, he is not waiting for them to make the first move, but to respond to his first move, and his second, and his tenth, and his twentieth, and his hundredth. So when I say that spiritual growth or transformation is dependent upon insight, don't imagine that only people who are exceptionally perceptive 
or intuitive or capable of spiritual growth. It's not intuition or perception we need. It's light. To have a spiritual insight is not some praiseworthy accomplishment. It's not in any way meritorious. You can say, oh, I've had this wonderful spiritual insight. Well, good for you. Lots of people do. God gives light, and then we need only look. That's all that's required. But that's not as easy as it sounds, since we've trained ourselves not to see. We can actually prefer darkness to light. People love darkness. This is from St. John's Gospel, chapter 3. People love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. I think we like the half-light best. Enough to make our way, but not enough to reveal our sins. When God does send light, our gut reaction is to head for cover. But be assured of this. No one who wants, or rather who chooses, to know the truth need fear that he or she is going to miss it. Now, when God begins working in our lives, and that's not a good way of putting it, since Father has been working on us since before we were born, but when he's working in our lives, we often don't recognize who it is who's working. We think it's coincidence. We think it's happenstance. We think it's indigestion. We don't have a feel at all for God's ways or recognize the sound of his voice. But he's working and speaking and waiting for the day when we are capable, when we're big enough, when there's finally enough of us to respond. And it's his working and speaking that makes us capable of responding in the first place. You have never met a person in whose life God is not now or has not previously been at work. Never met one. Now, that doesn't mean that person's aware of God's work, and it doesn't mean that he or she cares about the kind of work that God is doing, making him or her ready to receive and use and give truth and love, making him or her fully and richly and beautifully human, making him or her capable of entering into a satisfying, loving relationship with him. Most people aren't concerned about such things. They want God to be concerned about their things, about health and money and success. And because they don't want what God has to give, they aren't taking his calls. They won't stand in his light. They can say honestly, almost honestly, I haven't seen any evidence of God speaking to me. I don't see any evidence of God's existence. When and only by the grace of Christ we get to heaven... I expect we will marvel in gratitude at the innumerable times God shined his light into our lives and spoke his word into our minds. We'll see then what we often fail to see now, that in this pleasure and that pain, in this time of darkness and that time of utter confusion, God is working on us, making us capable of receiving him, his light, his truth. That work is his work is a work as great as the work of making the world. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said, God creates out of nothing. 
Wonderful, you say. Yes, to be sure, but he does what is still more wonderful. He makes saints out of sinners. Even before we get to heaven, we can sometimes see how God has been at work in us, usually in retrospect. I look back to a time when I was about 12 years old. I was playing football in the side yard with a bunch of the neighborhood boys. And then one of the guys came running from the store across the street with some candy, which he had just stolen off the shelf. And that act of daring elevated him to stardom in our group. And he dared all the rest of us to go across the street at that moment and steal something just like he did. And most of the guys headed across the street. Football game broke up, they headed across the street, but I just stood there thinking. That moment did not feel the least bit spiritual. But I could see that it was wrong and that it was a mean thing to do to the old couple who owned the store, whom I'd known all my life. They lived right across the street. That was my insight. It wasn't anything profound, but it was true. And I made a decision based on that insight. I chose not to go along with those guys, even though I knew it was going to diminish me in their eyes. Looking back, I think that decision and the insight that preceded it was important to my spiritual development. I think God was at work shining light into a 12-year-old boy, though I certainly didn't know it at the time. And heaven will be aware of a million such times that go back to our earliest days, personal and profound in each a fresh occasion for giving thanks to Father for working in our lives, even when we didn't know it and didn't appreciate it. God was certainly at work in Paul the Apostle's life in ways that Paul, who at the time went by the name Saul, couldn't begin to understand. And that work wasn't going on just as Paul studied the Bible, which he did, or participated in religious rituals, which he did. God was working. He was shining light and speaking truth at the very times that Paul was wrapped in darkness and speaking threats. The apostle Paul speaking threats? He certainly did. Saul, this is Acts chapter 9, verse 1, was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. But let's read Paul's own account that was given years later of what happened to him. He was in the official residence of the Roman procurator Festus, and he was addressing King Agrippa. And here's what he said. I'm going to start in the middle of his story. But he says, I too, talking to King Agrippa, I too was convinced I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So he sees this whole Christian thing as something terrible, and he's got to do what he can to stop it. And that's just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. That would be by giving them the 40 lashes minus one. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground. And I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard to kick against the goads. 
Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I'll show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I wasn't disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and to the Gentiles also. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. Now, in the Bible, the first mention of Saul, later Paul, comes in Acts chapter 7. That chapter records the death of the heretic, the Jesus follower, Stephen, at the hands of some influential religious leader, the kinds of people the media today refers to as religious extremists. They dragged him out of the city, Acts 7.58 tells us, and they stoned him. The way they stoned a person was prescribed, and it was brutal. They were to strip him. That didn't happen in Stephen's case, but they were to strip him. They were to push him off a bluff or a wall that was at least twice his height and then throw large stones at him. We think of stoning as taking a stone like this and throwing, but they would throw large stones down on his chest, preferably, until he died. They did this to Stephen, but standing alongside, giving his approval, perhaps one of the chief instigators of this whole thing, was a young man named Saul. Stephen, we read in Acts 7, tried to rise, and then he fell to his knees and called out, Lord, do not hold this in against them. His last words. And the young man Saul heard them. The spirit of God and of love was in those words. There was light in them. But Saul turned from that light. He ran for cover. And yet God was working, always working, speaking, always speaking, as he has been working and speaking into you all your life. But Saul was not yet big enough. There wasn't enough of him. He wasn't developed enough, human enough, to see the working or hear the speaking. But think of how the look on Stephen's face must have stayed with him. How he saw it when he closed his eyes. How he dreamed it when he went to sleep. Think of how his words would cut through Saul's darkness. He wasn't reciting a prayer, Saul realized. He was talking to the Lord the way one person talks to another. And those things stayed with Saul. They went to work on him, in him, preparing him for what was going to come. I suspect that his heart faltered from time to time. But the forward motion of his fear and his anger carried him on. So at the beginning of chapter 8, we find Saul still wrapped in darkness. Uh, to use Jesus' words, still kicking against the goads. Chapter 8, verse 3, Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. How many times, one wonders, did he drag people out of their homes, away from their children, how he scorned their cries for mercy, 
mocked their fears, but beneath their fears, he saw something else, something that unsettled him. When he breathed murderous threats, they breathed prayers. When he cursed them, they blessed him, at least some of them. He kept pushing forward, but the ground was slipping out from under him. He saw in these people the same kind of thing he'd seen in Stephen. They had something, a determination, a peace, a confidence that set them apart. There was a light shining in these people, but Saul was afraid to look along that light to see where it pointed. Insight was coming, and with it the moment of decision. But that was a moment that Saul wanted to avoid. Did he ever think, maybe these people are right? I imagine he worked hard not to think that, to keep that thought at bay. So he kept busy, kept running. He was running the show. He was running people in. But really he was running from the truth, running from the light. He tried to hide in the shelter of religious rituals and opinions, but he could feel behind him the relentless pursuit of truth with This is um, Francis Thompson from The Hound of Heaven. With unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace came on the following feet and a voice above their beat, nothing shelters thee who wilt not shelter me. The thing about running from God is that he's everywhere. When you think you're running from him, you're really running to him. There's only one place that you can be safe from God. It's a place he deigned to make as a refuge for those who refuse the light and hate the light giver. Jesus called it the outer darkness. Hell is the only place where you can be safe from God. Ironically, it's the place that you're safe from salvation. But it's not the place that you're safe from yourself and your sins. Paul's flight from the light brought him to the light giver. He came unwillingly face to face with the insight that he'd been trying hard to avoid. On his way to Damascus to arrest more Christians, the insight came. It was, like always, preceded by a revelation from God himself. As Paul tells it, at about noon, I came near Damascus, Suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and I heard a voice say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And then Saul asked a question, which is a really risky thing to do for a person who's trying to avoid insight. He asked, who are you, Lord? And now comes the revelation. I am Jesus. That Jesus is Lord. That the power and authority lies with him. Not with Caesar. Not with the Sanhedrin. Not with anyone else. That Jesus is Lord. Not just my personal Lord and Savior, as people like to say, but the world's master is a revelation of first importance, a truth of enormous consequence. Interestingly, the people with Saul didn't experience the same revelation. And so they didn't have the same insight. They saw the light, 
but they didn't understand the voice. They were not yet ready to receive that revelation or have the insight that would come from it. See, the hound of heaven was on their heels too. Not just so close as he was to Saul's. I can imagine in Saul's head something saying, no, no, not that, not Jesus. And then deeper down, I knew it. That Jesus is Lord is the revelation. It's not an insight. That's a revelation. No one can say Jesus is Lord apart from the Spirit. That's a revelation. Revelation has to do with what is. Insight has to do with what it means. The revelation is God's part. The insight was Saul's part. Saul spent the next three days helpless and blind. He was blinded with nothing to do but think. The man that couldn't stop running now couldn't walk out of the house without help. He was put in a place where he couldn't see out, but he could see in. He reviewed his life, his work, his success, his reputation, in the light of the revelation that Jesus is Lord. He saw what it meant. You can read about that in Philippians chapter 3, where he talks about it. He saw what that meant. It meant that his work, his accolades, his nimble climb up the ladder of success, all that was worthless. Worse than that, it was rubbish if Jesus is Lord. Paul spent three days processing this. But even after so dramatic a revelation, it was still possible for him to turn from the insight and go back into darkness. He could have told himself, it must have been the heat. My mind must have been playing tricks on me. He could have shaken off the experience and gone back to his old life with its old pursuits and its old rewards. Had he done so, his loss of sight would have become a loss of insight. He would have suffered an interior blindness from which he may never have recovered. But he didn't do so. He dared to see when the revelation that Jesus is Lord came to us or comes to us, for those of you who haven't yet experienced it, it is just as much a miracle as when it came to Saul. Like him, we'll either dare to look at what it means or we'll turn toward darkness. It's this revelation, the truth that Jesus is Lord and the insight that follows more than any other that has the power to change us into the people we are always meant to be. Saul had a revelation which he allowed to become an insight. But as we've seen in the past few weeks, change does not happen merely because we have an insight. And frankly, insights are a dime a dozen. The insight must be followed with the decision and the decision must be implemented into life for lasting change to occur. Saul's insight was that God was appointing him based on the revelation Jesus is Lord. His insight was that God was appointing him of all people to be a servant and a witness, those are his words, to the Lord Jesus among the Gentiles to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light to do for them what God had just done for him. Notice what he says next. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. See, his insight led him to make a decision. 
And his decision was implemented into action. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and to the Gentiles also. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. There's action. Did you notice that we have here again the three elements of lasting change? Repentance. Repentance has to do with insight. The Greek word means something like, not something like, it means a change of mind. Turning to God has to do with decision. And practicing deeds worthy of repentance, which is a literal translation, has to do with implementation. That process gets replayed in our lives again and again. Insight, decision, implementation. All spiritual development works along that line. So let me ask, have you had an insight recently? Maybe I should ask, are you running from an insight? If you've seen truth and a little of what it means in your life, have you made a decision based on that insight? Have you implemented that decision into your life? See, that's the pattern, the rhythm of God's work in us, the steps of the dance in which he leads us. Sometimes the insights come in fragments or in sequence, and it takes a while for its significance to dawn on us. Even after we've had a genuine insight based on God's revelation into his truth and what it means for us, it's possible for our forward motion to continue carrying us in the wrong direction. Insight alone will not halt our slide. That requires decision and implementation. The great truth here is that Jesus is Lord. Have you seen that? It's a revelation that comes to us repeatedly, not just at the beginning of the new life, but ever after always accompanied by fresh insights and new occasions for decision. That Jesus is the Lord, that Jesus is Lord, is the glory of the gospel, the hope of God's people, the doom of his adversaries, the joy of the whole earth. It's the confession that we make and it's the word of our testimony that Jesus is Lord is our continuing challenge and our enduring hope. Have you seen that Jesus is Lord? And if you have, what are you doing about it? All right, let's pray. God, we ask for the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. I pray that you will reveal in fresh ways to every one of our hearts that Jesus is Lord until it becomes the song of our lives. Heavenly Father, do this out of your love for us, but especially out of your love for your Son, our Savior, Jesus, who is Lord. Amen. Let's stand together.